His name is Heston Blumenthal. He is one of the most inquisitive and creative chefs on the planet, with a knowledge of food quite unlike anyone else. And now Heston is taking us on a journey to the centre of food, deep inside ingredients and dishes we all recognise, but to reveal the hidden secrets inside them and hopefully change how we all view cooking and eating forever. Hello Heston. Now we established last week, I won't be asking you in an insincere way, how are you? So I'm just going to say, uh, it's really nice to see you. It's lovely to see you too. And to see you lovely. Bruce Forsyth. And James, it's lovely to see you too. And to see you too both. Now James is here. James is our Fat Duck producer, as always, with his fingers on the, the actual information. So anything that... Hester and I mentioned, which is completely factually inaccurate. Gets removed, doesn't it? Well, maybe. It <laughs> gets <laughs> removed. What is that? Don't let, don't, don't let a story get a good story. Get in the way of the <laughs> truth. Yeah, don't, don't let a fact story. get in the way of a good story. Yeah. Now, we today are going to be delving into yet another ingredient, one I'm really looking forward to. But before that, we've had some responses from our, our wonderful audience out there. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we did an episode inspired by Roald Dahl and his, yeah. uh, his suggestion that we should all be learning about the history of our favourite chocolate bars rather than the history of our kings and queens. And it was brilliant. I thoroughly enjoyed hearing the history of them and everything you had to say about them. And in the end, you put together a, uh, a top three. Turns out people didn't agree with you. There's a surprise. But, um, we've, had some, we've had some responses, which I thought, I thought I'd run past you from different I'll people. just say, Jay, you did ask me for three. And I had to give you three. <laughs> they're I not know, cast, I they're know. not set in stone. Are they not? No, this is, this is official now. This is the official top three yeah. chocolate bars ever, as written in stone by Hessen Blumenthal. Actually, just before you say that, I've got to say, I do remember... One of the things um, that happened often on our filming days was something called Vox Pops. And Vox Pops are when you have to accost poor, unsuspecting pedestrians in the street and ask them a load of sort of random questions. Yeah. Uh, and, and one of them was, you know, what's your favourite chocolate bar? And then we'd ask, you know, I'd rather ask, zero people because I felt it was such an intrusion of people's privacy but I, I kind of I, I grinned and bared it and apologised for interruption and all of this kind of stuff and and then what would happen I, after a couple of handfuls of people would say well you know 70% of the people said Twix therefore 70% of Britain's <laughs> favourite chocolate bar is Twix we were about as accurate to be fair than most of those servers they do but, but no, and if you watch it, those adverts yeah. eight out of ten cats yeah exactly but, uh, but those vox pops you're right they're purgatory aren't they in tv it's the thing that we all do not look forward to because some poor person just pottering around a shopping market and then we burst in front of them with a camera and go oi what do you like do you want to, uh, most of the time you were feeding people things do you remember the stuff you do you remember we gave those old ladies plant pots with edible soil in them oh yeah oh yes <laughs> in the garden center Oh my oh, word! That was so much fun. That yeah. was so much fun. The looks some of them gave. To be fair, a couple of them ploughed into them, but a couple of them gave you looks like they just don't be ridiculous. Get away from me, strange yeah. man with plant I'm pots. About to call the police. It was. It was. Don't it? Step away. So the responses. I'll run some of them past you that we've had to uh, to our chocolate bar episode, and and just to say we love this because it's really good to know what's going on out there it. in the wider world. Right. And also, this is the beauty. Of food there isn't a better or best you can have your own best but so often people say you know what's your favorite so-and-so and, -so? and uh, let, let's say uh, i don't know somebody's eating they really love a i don't know domino's pizza and then someone else says that's disgusting how can you eat that no the best pizza is 
such and such. Well, that might be your best pizza at a given time of day, but that's the beautiful thing with food. It is so wonderfully emotionally subjective. Exactly. Although I think on this list, we will be able to agree that some of them are wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, do you think we're going to come up with a nation's favourite now? Yeah, definitive. Um, So what have we got? We've got, um, oh, some of our brilliant listeners down under. Gemza23. This might be an Aussie thing, but I couldn't go past a Cadbury's Caramello Koala. Like a Freddo frog, but a koala with a tummy with liquid caramel in it. Ooh. Oh, I didn't even know that existed. No, I sounds, think we have to do a whole episode think, on this. On I think we chocolates. had them in the UK as, as, a, as a, maybe a lion, were they, or something? I think there was a caramel version of the Freddo. Aren't Freddo's caramel anyway? No, they're just they're just chocolate. I mean, it's, it's a bit like you know, everyone loved um, it, Quality Street, and we've done we've done we've, we've, we've done a touch on this on one of the shows how these chocolate companies they ain't stupid. They work out, they give you a, a melange, a mixture of chocolates. And if you don't have some chocolates that you don't want to eat, so there's the ones that always end up in the bottom of the tin. If you don't have those, you can't really appreciate the the ones that people think are the most magical. And then they became so successful, they started to do bigger versions, didn't they, of of Quality Street. So there was the big one. Did they call it the big one? It was was just just like the koala, the caramel-scented koala. It, basically, the, the purple one, the big purple one in Quality Street, was in fact that with a nut in the middle of it, and then it was wrapped in foil and wrapped in ah, wrapped in cellophane. You remember we made some for one of the shows with edible foil and edible cellophane. Of course, you remember, we? Jay. Of course, I remember. I haven't forgotten anything we've done over the years. Um, <laughs> And we'd never drank wine on location either, which completely killed me. Um, <laughs> there was a, yes, I do remember um, doing uh, large versions of of some of the sweets. I also remember as a kid, I loved the different coloured cellophanes because you'd put them over your eyes, wouldn't you? And the world would turn blue and orange at the same time, which I thought was brilliant. Did you ever try and stick one of them into your eye with the caramel that was attached to it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in such a hurry to change yeah. my view of look, the world. Mom, look, <laughs> what i could do and we've also had an, a, a a lovely note from holly also down under by the sound of things because she yeah. said um you've got to try these aussie chocolate bars chico chokito chokito uh, with a k in the middle violet crumble which i almost misread as violent crumble which is uh, i don't sound like something completely different and a caramel koala and she's even asked if she could send some over to us Oh Jeff, yes, please. please. Yes, too. Look at you both nodding. <laughs> yes, please. What we should do, what we should do, is taste them um, when we get them. So Holly, when we receive them, if you do manage to kindly send some, we'll taste them. We'll taste them uh, together. I'm, I'm excited. Let's mm. just, just see what they taste like. Because all my time in Australia, I didn't come across those. FPS Grand Mab. Oh, this is a good one. I'm a child of the 50s and I can remember walnut whips had a half walnut on top and another half walnut at the bottom of the whip. I can oh. also recall the coffee version, which was my favourite. Oh, yes, they had a bit of walnut. I th- it was almost like it was embedded into the base of the walnut whip. I completely forgot about that. I haven't eaten a walnut whip for, I don't know, decades probably. Well, I'm not that old. Decades and a bit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Dabina also says the violent crumble is what she... What is that? I don't know what a, a violent, <laughs> looks, violent, violent crumble. Well, I've been Googling violent. while you've been talking. It looks a bit like a crunchy, but it looks a bit more interesting than a crunchy. So I'm, I'm excited so if the, someone wants know to those, send them in. You get crystallised... They start up crystallised violets. And 
we've used crystallized violets. If you put them in a pan with a little bit of cream and just boil them up very briefly, what happens is all the crystallized purple sugar and the violet with the violet essence in it dissolves into the cream. So you have this beautifully purple sort of caramel, creamy caramel, I suppose. And then we pour those, pour them into tartlet cases. So if you, if you, if you did that at home, just, just pour them on top of a biscuit like a shortbread biscuit, let them get cold, and you'd have a pretty wonderful biscuit, I thought. What is a violet? The flower? Yeah, it's a flower. Oh, right. Oh, that is what you're talking about. I, I didn't yeah. know you could and it's, and, eat and that. Violet creams, yeah, and um, little violets sucking the sucking sweets. But I think nowadays it's very expensive to make them with real violets. So they use violet flavouring or violet, violet essence. You've got me saying violent. Maybe that's another <laughs> challenge. Let's create... The smell of violence. Probably some perfumer has already done that. I think that would probably be. We were going to do that once. Remember, we were going to do we were going to do a, a cinema experience, and we were going to try and make different foods. Well, you were going to try and make them. I was just going to film you doing it. Uh, that that reflected the moods of the film. So when you got excited, you'd be eating something that made you feel excited. That's one of my big topics currently. I've done there's so many things I've forgotten that I've done. Is to try and match because if you have a if you have a let's say a, a moment of adrenaline. Um, the perfume world uses certain smells to create energy. So, you know, if you want to put a, an aftershave on you in the morning, it's like going for work, a, a power aftershave. They use things like citrus. Citrus is more energetic, I suppose, whereas something like um, some wood resins and lavender and stuff like that is, is more calming. Where on that spectrum does Lynx Africa sit? In the sweet spot. Uh, that's interesting. Though. I didn't realise that you... I mean, it sounds obvious when you say it, but the idea that you could, in theory, match your scent to what what kind of uh, reaction you wanted from it. So you could wear an energy scent if you were trying to get everyone excited. Yeah, well, I mean, if you think about it, a lot of this stems from um, the evolution of language. And there's a very strong theory that um, a lot of language was onomatopoeic. So it would reflect an action. So generally, in most cultures, it gets more complicated where the language of a nation or an area has been bastardised over over hundreds or even thousands of years. So the more the more a country's been invaded or cross-bred or cross-married or whatever, merged, then they absorb each other's languages. So then they become a bit more complicated. But when it's stayed more pure, the language reflects the action. So chop is a shorter word because if you think about chop you don't it's not a long a long action so there's a reflection if you think about the word sharp sharp can be physical sharp like a knife it can be a musical note a sharp for example it can be somebody's personality sharp it can be acidity lemon juice sharp so they have they have um, they have different sort of sensory meanings so you can have a sharp piece of music linked to a sharp smell that's really interesting that that idea of association of smells and words and i mean we've explored the power that that has before when you've done some of your experiments on me but i I, yeah Yeah, it's remarkable it's it's this combination of learned association or synesthesia and i'll just um either this goes in here or we, we we revisit it if i haven't already said it there's a great um he's a neurologist called David Eagleman. And I heard him do an interview, a podcast with Russell Brand. Now, I'm 
a synesthete, which means I see letters as colours. I don't, if I read a book and the print is black, I don't think about it. But if I, somebody asks me, if I, if I imagine a letter, if I picture a letter, I see it. And capitals and small um, aren't necessarily the same colour. So I would see T as blue for the word table. A is red, B is blue, L is yellow, and E is blue. Put them together, the table's slightly browny. Now that's synesthesia. It's when two parts of the brain two, that, that control the two different senses maybe connect a bit stronger than others. So people can, um, they can taste words. Um, they can, they can, you know, the shape has a smell. Sounds a bit weird on the face of it, but when you talk about learned association, we've all got that to a certain extent, because if you, if you hear a symbol or, or a, something in a piece of music, it's sharp. Now, I thought, I, my, my, and not all synesthetes have the same um, association, so not everyone's going to see the same, the letters I just said as the same colours I said. But in David Eagleman's uh, podcast, he said that They've done a lot of work studying synesthetes. They tend to be more creative. And in fact, there was a period between sort of 1970, late 60s, early to mid 70s, where there was a batch. There's a small percentage of, relatively small percentage of people that are, that are synesthetes. Um, and, but there was, a, there was a period where the colour letter synesthetes generally seem to see, see the same letters as the same colours. And they discovered why or why they thought that was the case. And it was Fisher-Price fridge magnets. Remember the letters? Oh, wow. Of course. So, yeah, they'd just be on the fridge door. So if you're a toddler, you're walking around, you might pull them off and put them back on the fridge or they might fall on the floor. You don't need to know how to spell. You don't even really need to know what the letter is and, and, and what role it has in certain words, so to speak. However, you'll see the shape and you'll see the colour. So there was such, it was such a popular kind of toy that a whole bunch of people grew up associating particular letters with particular colours. Wow. Okay, cool, that, the power, the power of something like that to program us at such a young age is incredible. And, and probably... Absolutely absolutely unaware of everybody who's involved in it apart from these guys who made that connection which must have been an amazing yeah. moment when they went oh wow look at these these are the same I only heard about this me. six months ago I was running and I nearly tripped over a tree stump which wouldn't be the first time by the way no but, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah so, so coming back to that yes I love the way this cr cross modality this is multi-sensory it's exactly the whole world of, 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 of things being multi-sensory multi so um yeah, we'll, we will continue to touch on this subject um, in the future because it is, it is, it's been at the heart of my life's work for the last 25 years and probably my childhood without knowing it. Back to our chocolate comments. Daniel Betts doesn't mess around. Double decker, if I'm in the mood. Boom. <laughs> I love the mood. that. I love that. But, but, but that's absolutely, I think he's nailed it. Double decker, if actually. I'm in the mood. Because it doesn't, it doesn't mean to say that you're always going to want to eat a double decker. Not always. Good point. Is the Good point. The problem with better and best. If I'm in the mood, great. I Dorothy, Dorothy Nielsen. Hello again, Dorothy. She says Yankee Bar. I don't know what that is. Oh, Never heard oh, of that. I'm in, I yeah, don't know, oh. I don't know what it is. I've got to Google what that. What is it? I'm Googling. We're Googling yeah. it. James is on it. The Yankee Bar. Yankee 
Meanwhile, Bra- Brad has said green and black's almond. No. <laughs> Hang on, <Jeff. laughs> Why did you just throw that out like that? Is it too, was it, it was too serious for you. Yeah, it's too serious and too recent. Um, the same with but, but Anne Brad, Simo, who says never, Cadbury Fuse Bar. I mean, that is that is properly... That's a that's a, a a niche chocolate. I remember the name Fuse Bar. I but remember, I don't... but again, I don't know what it is. I, I don't know what a Fuse Bar is. Well, I'm, I'm, this is this is all giving me good excuses to go and invest for research purposes. I was in the service station yesterday, and I I, I was looking with a, a re, absolutely renewed interest in the chocolate section, and I was I was really surprised at how many Twixes there are now. There is a, like a, a salted caramel one, oh, there's noticed. a double chocolate one. I'm, yeah, ah, I, I, I want. Do you know I'm, I also. D- I realised because I saw it the other day. I didn't get, I didn't buy it, but I saw it and I realised when I said um, Kit Kat. Remember, we read the world's largest Kit Kat. I do. It was massive. It had seven layers in it. But what it did, it, you couldn't obviously, you couldn't even if you could, you had to break one of the sticks off with a hammer and chisel. It was, it, I don't <laughs> know how many kilos this thing weighs, but you you couldn't pick the bar up on your own. It was too big. But it did give you the the the. the um, it gave us the ability to be able to explore different layers in textures so the soft ganache and a bit of a mousse and different sort of biscuits and crunchy bits and crispy bits but Kit Kat Chunky is it called Chunky? It's the big thick oh, Kit yeah. Kat and they yeah. do a peanut one I've had that it's, I like it I think that, it's great that would be right up there I also, I also like peanut M&M's never really got the whole M&M thing Smarties I get M&M's just Oh, I prefer M&M's to Smarties. I used to like Smarties, but then you remember you used to be able to uh, collect the plastic caps on the top of a Smartie tube and they'd have a letter That's right. under the cap. What were the letters for? Were you trying to get the whole alphabet or did mm-hmm. it say something? No, I think they were spelling. collect the whole alphabet. Yeah. Um, do what you want with them, spell. Yeah. Hyen Ragor says, I'm a big fan of alpine chocolates. The conching process really makes a big difference and adds the floral honey quality. If I had to pick one, I'd pick the Ritter Sport Alpine. I, I agree with him. Some of those alpine chocolates, it's like Milka. You know the light blue packets with the cow, there's a cow on the front. It's when you think of, you see them all, all over the place. Airports, they're massive. Big Milka bars. What does conching, pro, what does conching what, process mean? The conching process is when is, is really important. Once you've got the, you get the cocoa beans, so you've got this big, imagine like a really big avocado is, is a cocoa bit, is a pod. And then inside that pod <clears throat> is lots of little beans. It sort of look like smallish almonds they take those um co- they're the cocoa beans inside the pods they take those beans out but before they do that they ferment they, they probably this process would be legal now if it was invented because of health and safety but they ferment the beans in big tubs and that first stage of fermentation is really important for developing the flavor of the beans before roasting then you take Inside the beans, inside the bean, the the pods rather. Then you take those beans, and then you roast the beans. Now the roasting process is very protected, and all chocolate makers have their own roasting process. So time and temperature, roast the beans, uh, and then then you 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 basically get a paste out of them. You end up extracting cocoa solids, the cocoa butter, which then becomes white white chocolate. Then when you mix it, you have to get these big machines. Imagine a swimming pool, small swimming pool. I don't know, three, roughly, they, they change in size, but let's let's imagine uh, one that a, a, a top-end chocolate maker would use um, as opposed to big mass-produced ones because these are 
too small for them. But it will be three, maybe three foot wide, about 10 foot long. And it would be more deep on one end than the other. And then they'd be filled. They'd have the, the, the mixture in, the chocolate mixture in. And a big rolling pin attached to two arms will kind of roll or slop or slop sluice around the chocolate. And as they would do this, and, and it depends, it goes between 12 and 72 hours, the most expensive chocolates are, are longer. And it changes several, th several things. You, you through Because you've got the potential flavor changes from the fermentation process and the roasting process. And then this mixture, this mixing, gradually you change for things like the acids. So that's when it starts to go to, to become the magical chocolate that we love. So the conching process uh, also is affected by time and, and temperature and things like that. So the more expensive bars will conch for longer. So that's that kind and of lint bar. When you have a lint bar, it's got that uh, sort of creaminess to it. That seems to well, there again, they're some of these high, but with the, the alpine ones, I think historically tend to the mix is cooked it maybe higher, slightly higher for longer. And they have this sort of creaminess that is different from... So Milka Swiss chocolate bar is similar to a Cadbury's whole milk or dairy milk, but it's not, it's different. And yeah. Ritter and Ritter Sport, the, the Ritter bars, they're very... I mean, they're, they're very popular in Europe. I like them. What I'm thinking, as you're talking now, what we need to do is... We have listeners, we're very lucky, we have listeners all around the world and got some really good analytics back there and i could see we have people in america we have people in new zealand we have people right across europe it's fantastic yeah. what we'd love is everyone to start sending in their favorite chocolates from around the world so we can start putting together a definitive sort of history of chocolate bars across the world when i say definitive obviously yeah. i mean not definitive but um but at least sort of in our sense the you know journey to the center of food top chocolate bars of the world please yeah. get in touch we want to hear uh, and on that note, I'll just say the Yankee bar is a, is a very popular chocolate bar in Denmark. It looks to be a little bit like a Mars bar, but clearly it's something that's, that's not, it's not a UK-based chocolate bar. Um, so, yeah, so it, it looks intriguing. Maybe a company so called again, Tom's. There's never, there's never one reason for, for, for something to, to evolve in the way it does, but <clears throat> I love, this is why I think the history of... of of these things, you know, go back to Roald Dahl's comment, is, is so fascinating because, you know, we told the story about Mr. Mars coming from the States to Slough because he wanted to set up next to Mr. Horlicks to get his malt. And, you know, th these, there are ch countries around the world that have similar chocolate bars. They're similar, but they're different. And the big chocolate companies now, you know, Kit Kat in Japan is not the same as a Kit Kat in the UK. Same as Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola. They have green ones. They have, I, I'm sure I've seen a green Kit Kat when I was in... They, they have about 20 plus flavours. They have rose, they have lychee, they have green tea. The green ones are green tea. Didn't you give me... I seem to remember we were on a plane somewhere and you gave me a load of these things to try. Probably. Do you know I like them? And I had all these different coloured ones. Yeah. That was crazy. Yeah. That, a green Kit Kat. The, you, know, you know, obviously we've just been talking about color learn color association and just what you expect and when you see something that is so recognizable but so completely alien in terms of color it really messes with your your mouth and your mind yeah unless i mean if someone tells you that this is green tea this is a green tea kit kat it does make it a little bit easier i think to get your head around especially nowadays but maybe 10 years ago there's probably not a lot of people that knew what 
Yeah, if you think we've moved so far in terms of our, our knowledge of um, different food cultures, I remember 10 years ago or so, if you, most people went to a Japanese restaurant, would not have a clue what most of the things were. And actually, what? how did you order? I mean, was there a starter, main course, dessert? I, I remember for Waitrose, we did, um, it was a great product, but it was just ahead of its time. We did a ponzu sauce, which is classic Japanese dressing. It's basically soy sauce, yuzu lime, which is looks like a lime, but it's more like a mandarin, and some other stuff in it. And it was in a little bottle, and you, you basically just use it like a vinaigrette, or you could, you know, if you had some, made your own cured fish, you could dip that in it, use it on lots of things. But it didn't sell very well, because nobody knew what a ponzu sauce was. I'm not saying everyone knows what a ponzu sauce is now, but certainly a lot more a lot more people. So, you know, this is, this is uh, just, just the wonderful universe of food and our relationship with it. Wonderful. And now we must move on to our episode today. But just before we do, we've had one final piece of feedback, apparently, James. Someone has sent in a review of the podcast. This is one that's just on the iTunes platform where people have been leaving their mixed and varied reviews. It's from a character called Leo Fizzbang, which I thought I'd share with you, that says... Um, it's from quite recently, last month, and it said, I came across this podcast just by chance and I'm subscribing forever, so thanks very much for that. Heston and Jay work really well together. Well done, chaps. Uh, they're really easy to listen to. The topics they discuss are fascinating, as one would expect, and a pair of them together are quite funny. They both have beautiful, soporific voices, so if you're listening just before you go to bed, they'll send you to sleep. If nothing else, you're providing a public service for the insomniacs out there who are desperate Leo Fizzbang's probably not got this far into the podcast before. <laughs> I think I clearly have a face for radio. I wish I, wish I could send myself to sleep instead of everyone else around me. <laughs> I hear you on that front. I hear you on that. Lockdown insomnia, honestly. Well, anyway, let's carry on our public service of sending people to sleep. If anyone's still awake halfway through the podcast, we'll, we'll finish you off now. Heston, we're going to explore another ingredient today in depth what is that ingredient that we're going to be looking at grapes Ooh, lovely diving into the world of grapes which i imagine could take us in a lot of different directions right my, my, my greatest passion for grapes is i love wine and i'm fascinated by the whole winemaking process it's a bit like, a bit like bread you take bread you take flour water yeast and have a, a, just an unbelievable variation in quality and type of breads from around the world that really reflect our, you can see through our evolution. And wine is the same thing. You know, the fermentation process, actually wine, you just, you take grapes. You could say on the face of it, it's just grapes. But all the work of the winemaker, the, 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 the soil, all the energies from, from, from the seasons, both the, while the grapes, while the leaves are forming, while the buds are forming, the grapes are growing and they're ripening. And, but also in winter, you know, when you, when you have to prune the vines back and all the work and, and love and care and attention that goes into nurturing these plants, you pick the grapes and then you make wine. And my God, how many different wines are there on this on this planet and each wine is a living thing each bottle of wine is a living thing it changes over age and it's just grapes it's, it's fermented grape juice and as a chef um 
and as a, somebody who has ADHD, <laughs> the thought of making wine would frustrate the living daylights out of me because, <laughs> and I have made wine. I, mean, I, I spent a year on a vineyard actually, so I've got. I, I've, I've done some before. I, uh, in my early days, I um, I did a viticultural course for a month. Spent a year. I did a, did a whole season. Looking after looking after the vines, pruning, looking after the soil, etc. It's incredibly complex um, labor of love. But then you get one crack at the whip, and you can find certain vintages of great wines. You know, one one chateau in a particular area would make a great wine in a bad year. Why? Because they just happened to pick the grapes two days before the hailstorms came, for example, and then everything changes. So you imagine you're lying in bed and you, you oh, I want a bit more ripeness. I need a bit more ripeness, please, please, a bit more ripeness. And then the weather comes in and changes everything. And then what do you do for the year? You have to change all of, the, all of your plans until you've got one crack at the whip. Whereas, you know, you're in a kitchen, in a professional kitchen, you want consistency. So you're only really as good as the last plate of food that you send. You can change things much quicker than you can change with winemaking and more control across the pros i mean you're so much more in the lap of nature with winemaking right you say that one storm or something goes slightly wrong and yeah you can't do but anything all, about it all of the great winemakers will, will tell you um humbly but also it's it's true that the, the great winemaker the work is done well most of the of the of the of the the blood sweat and tears are done before you pick the grapes and if you get that bit right then you can allow the grapes to go through their fermentation process more naturally because they developed all the potential for the post-harvest process you know, even down to the the, the fact that I, I believe that um the altitude altitude affects our taste obviously pressure is different humidity is different and many other things so a winemaker will do the harvest. Let's say they're in the vineyards in Chile. Chile's at high altitude. So they will be doing everything. They live at high altitude. So their grapes will be made. The wines, the grapes will be grown. The wine will be made at higher altitude. And they'll still be tasting through the process. They'll be tasting from the barrel. They're making a decision when to blend. They're making a decision when to bottle. And all of these things. They can do all their sort of, all of the sort of chemical analysis on the wines. Potential sugars and all this kind of stuff but you still need a human being to taste it. So it's a reflection of the interaction between the human and the vine and the grapes. So I even think in, in aeroplanes, and this is, I'd love to do a future podcast on, on airplane food, because that's I think that's, that's fascinating. I think that the wines made at higher altitudes would drink better, drink more pleasurably in an airplane. I know an airplane's a lot higher than a high altitude vineyard, however, you know, if you're several thousands of couple thousand meters above sea level, you know, you're a lot closer to an aeroplane. That's amazing. I've never thought of that. What a cool theory. The idea that I wonder if you if you if you tried the same bottle of wine and went in some uh, what are they called hyperbaric chambers or whatever they are, where you can change the pressure inside them. Yes. I wonder if how We've different what the difference would be. We did it at John Moore's University in in, in Liverpool, we, and we went into a basic chamber where you could. 
you could tweak the altitude and the humidity and things like that. And we looked at different different tastes. And yeah, it has an effect. It has a marked effect. That's, so that's because that's what that's doing is it's blocking your nasal passages so that your your flavor perception is changing amongst other things yeah definitely a bit like when you have a i mean this is just there's more there's 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 many reasons but one of them is like when you have a cold it's harder to taste it's because you, your your nasal pathways um if they're drier and under pressure then there's less air can get through and and, and it affects your 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 receptors so yeah it definitely makes a difference that sounds like a really cool yeah we should definitely do one about airplane food i think that's a really interesting area and i remember we were in Margaret River again down under and we were standing in a vineyard and I found it fascinating because you just we were just pottering through the vines weren't we and you were talking to me about canopy management and the yeah. trimming the leaves over the grapes because one leaf too many one leaf too few can make a vast difference yeah because you've got this balance so I suppose it's like the whole everything in life <laughs> what is a balance but you need enough leaves to get the photosynthesis from the sunlight, which then gets converted to energy for the grapes. So if you take too many leaves away, you don't have enough photosynthesis energy. I don't know if it's photosynthetic energy or I've just made that word up. Sounded like quite a cool word. We'll go with it, sounds good. Let's go with it. You don't get enough of that being passed through to the fruit. You also then need to trim the fruit early because if you go for quantity, then the same amount of energy is dispersed or, or shared by a higher quantity of fruit. So it's a combination. If you, if you don't have enough leaves, you don't have enough energy source from the sunlight to be passed to the fruit. But you also need to um, take enough leaves back or off to allow space between the grapes and allow the, 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 the sun to also hit the grapes. I mean, this, that's just one, that's one of hundreds of things the winemaker um, has to think about. But how do they do that? I, I, look, that sounds complicated enough with one vine and three or four bunches of grapes. When I've seen these pictures from some of these vast wine growing regions in Australia and South Africa, when they've got you know hundreds of acres worth of how can they possibly do that? How can you manage the? Do they just have hundreds of people? What's the, what's, what's the well, thing? the really big ones. The really big ones are all done by, by machine. I remember hearing this story. Now I might be corrected on this, but I it's, it, I heard the story and I heard it several times. I don't know if it's in a wise tale or not, but it's an interesting story. Is that the one at the time the biggest vineyard in the world was actually in America. It was Gallo, Ernst and Gallo, I think they were called. Their vineyard, and I don't know, and I apologise, well, I don't apologise to anyone from Wales for this, but maybe it's a, a compliment. But why is Wales always used as a benchmark for if something is big? It's so big, it's the size of Wales. So that could be a compliment. <laughs> but this vineyard, the the, the Gallo, there's a Gallo vineyards were were meant to be they're bigger than the size of Wales. So there's no way you can do that by hand. But if you go to, you know, some of the most expensive wines in the world, and one of them we'll touch on in a second, is called Chateau Ikem. And it's a Sauterne. And with Sauterne, the grapes are intentionally left on the vines until late, much later in the in the year, maybe a month or two later. And what they're after is the weather changes and they develop a particular rot you don't want grey rot. Type of rot? Yeah, but it's called Pourriture Nobel, noble rot. 
Now, if you get grey rot, you, I mean, that's it, they go in the bin. You can't, I mean, you can't do anything with them. But but noble rot, ice vine in Austria does the same, they do the same thing. They wait till it snows and then the, the, then the grapes freeze and then they, they, they start to burst. But the, the, the rot, the mould that grows on them is very, very highly prized and develops this incredibly unique characteristic to it. And this is what Chateau Ikem does. And they end up with one, um, I think, one vine produces a glass of wine. Oh, wow. One vine. Okay. Wow. Okay. And so that's expensive, that, right? Oh, it's very expensive. And... They have to be so careful to stop this rot to nurture. They have to nurture the mold because you don't want the, the good mold to turn into bad mold. How on earth did anyone met... discover this? Oh, this, this is, is accidental big... discovery, surely. Yes, over over many 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 years, and sometimes if there's not enough air, if the humidity is too high and the air too still at a certain time of year, that rot can turn. So what they what do they do sometimes? They employ helicopters to sit over the vines. No. Imagine if you want a big fan. Right, get me six helicopters. Do they really? Yeah. That's such a cool yeah. idea. I love that way of doing it. That's brilliant. Right, it's not not enough wind flow. Get the helicopters. Yeah, I think they call that. I think they call it Ekem reassuringly expensive. I mean, the, 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 these wines are in a restaurant wine list. That, I don't know. Could be between depending on the, the vintage but easily you could pay five to ten thousand pounds for a bottle of this oh wow okay. and they last for 100 150 years better for that much money <laughs> yeah absolutely do people drink this very often or is it one of those ones that's just literally bought and people put it in a cellar forever and ever to make money well, I, I suppose it depends how enthusiastic and how much money you have and how much money you're prepared to spend on a bottle of a bottle of wine i mean it is it is incredible and for me it's something you should save for a very special occasion. You don't, I mean, you have one sip of it. I mean, it is nectar, but it's incredibly expensive, nectar. But at the same time, you know, we've done the mindful raisin process. If you eat a mindful, uh, if you eat a raisin mindfully and think about where it came from and the family that nurtured and grew the raisins and how it was picked and dried and what it feels like on your fingertips and on your lips and what it smells like and how it, the delicate texture changes as you start to softly chew it and then releases its all of its sort of you know beautiful acidity and sweetness and then all the flavours in your mouth and you can feel your digestive juices going. One little raisin that is thousands of times cheaper than a glass of Ekem can also produce something magical. Yeah, so think about it. you've got something in your hand that's cost you ten grand and is dried by helicopters. Suddenly, it's gonna you're gonna put enough. You're not gonna have to work to really mindfully enjoy that moment. You're gonna yeah, exactly. It's gonna be fact, spectacular. I got I got so fascinated by this whole evolution of you know the importance of fermentation and mold, and we look at how you can get good mold and bad mold. And actually, cheese, blue cheese is mold. So harnessing this mold at any cost to produce this incredible wine. And it, it has a the noble rot has a unique flavour. So I started to look into the um, a bit like the counting sheep dish flavour pairing. Um, what were the characteristics of of, of say a Chateau Ikem? And what were some of the molecules that were developed naturally through the winemaking process? And what foods did they exist in? And we came up with whole range of stuff from blue cheese, orange flower water, 
um, curcuma or uh, cumin, honey, um, tomatoes, and many other things. So we created a dish called botrytis, which is the Latin name of this noble rock. And I think one of the first times we served it, we did a Chateauican dinner at the Duck. And it's a beautiful looking dish. It looks like a bunch of grapes. And we took the grape skins and, and then dried them and then ground them up and then made a grape leaf from the skin. Um, and in fact, that dish went to be, we did it for the final of Australian MasterChef, which is the longest, I think it's the, up until two years ago, it was the longest uh, TV cook show challenge set. They're still doing it now, are they? <laughs> yeah, it was, four it was, buggers, four buggers uh, when you come out and was, give them that. It was six hours. And oh. the, the grapes were made from, there was some sort of very, very fine chocolate spheres, but the real ball breaker was the last thing they had to do. They had to blow these little, so from sugar, they had to blow these spheres to the size of a grape where, this, where this, the sphere wall or the sugar wall was about the thickness, like a half a mil thick, and then pipe like a mousse inside them. This dish is is utterly spectacular i think it's probably the most well it's hard competition but i think the most beautiful dish the fat duck creates we'll put a picture on the instagram it is amazing but i didn't know how you did the um the gold one doesn't it they look because they're all different yeah, colors and bring, shapes so you you have a you have a, a lamp that's like um like a sun lamp i suppose and then you you have make a sugar like a sugar dough and you knead it like bread dough and then it starts to get soft and stretchy and then when it gets to the right texture, and you can only really do this, really know this with experience. So these poor contestants, if they've not had any experience with sugar blowing, it's really tricky. Then when you get that right, you make a little ball of this mix and you have like a straw. And you blow, you blow, you put the straw into the ball of soft sugar. Careful, if it gets too hot, you, you'll be careful with your fingers, you don't burn your fingers. And you blow a balloon from it. And then you snip the end off from the straw. But if you wait for a few seconds too long, it's already gone crisp. And as you, as you snip it off, the whole thing cracks. You think you just got the most beautiful sphere. And then you're a few seconds late. Shatters. Basically, shattered dreams. I don't know how your chefs do it, to be honest. You, you must have the most controlled people in the world working or either that they'll just freak out after service every night and just go and punch the wall a few times because it's just that concentration to do that over and over again kind of three months of solid training and the margin for and the margin for error is so small like you say with something like that yeah, well, if, if the sugar if if the if the casing is too thick then the whole thing is ruined it's like if you make a chocolate sphere the more delicate you want the chocolate to be nice and crisp and let's say you've got some caramel in the inside it's that contrast of the crisp and soft. But if the crisp is too thick, then you lose the delicacy and that delicacy adds a massive element of surprise and wonderment. I, I think in terms of a, uh, an homage or in honour of the grape, it is, a, it is a fantastic dish because it brings to life all of the things you're talking about. It's the kind of that precision, it's that focus, it's that uh, weight of ages of experience all on one plate with... Yeah. Do you actually give a glass of, of that wine with it as well? Yes, yes. The Chateau Weekend, there's other sota- there are other beautiful sauternes that do not cost anywhere near the same amount of money. Also, Hungary make a fantastic wine called Tokai. 
and there's other there's other versions that other other countries that make wines with 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 noble rock that don't cost anywhere near that amount of money but the whole point is the pairing of the two you can really it's like the two that the wine and the dish become more than the sum of their parts also you've got there's something something human beings have done in the world of cooking one of the oldest processes is fermentation and that must you know that must have been by accident and and one of the challenges is controlling fermentation because there's so many factors you it's not like I, if I put this dish in the oven at 150 degrees centigrade for 25 minutes, it's going to come out like this. With fermentation, you're never quite sure. You want to have as much control over that as possible, but there, there's just a little bit that's left to chance, which is has a Russian roulette element. But then when you have when you have that pairing of that wine with that dish, you've got that element of fermentation, which is it's just, just wonderful fantastic and th- there's two things that, which this will take me 30 seconds two things i'll just drop in because they're for future um future podcasts one was a champagne jelly where we captured all of the fizz and the bubbles which was inspired by a scientist a professor from bristol university who's a friend of peter barham's actually called len fisher so that can go into a gels podcast jellies because that's a, that's that's a that's a great exciting subject because jellies go from childhood to the most you know the most adult type dish. Also, something that a process that I developed inspired by something that was um, from one of the big food companies called a fluid gel, which ties into the hot and iced tea, it, uh, vegetable purees, but in particular a dish we did which was based on a very classical French dish called sole Véronique, which is basically sole with grapes. And we ended up making this fluid gel, which is like a puree using a gelling agent to make the puree. And then last minute, pouring a little bit of champagne in mixing it into the gel and serving it with a sole. But we can touch on that in a later podcast. There we are. Heston, what a wonderful voyage into all manner of different things there. But that was fascinating. I learned things I never, never knew before in that whatsoever um james thank you as ever for being there to keep us on the right side of fact really appreciate it heston that was wonderful uh, all that's left to say this time i'm afraid is thank you and goodbye heston goodbye guys and thank you everyone for sending sending in your your questions your chocolates your everything i love it <laughs>